this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we are going to be talking about a band that um, I have uh, a lot of history with. You, not so much. But uh, you've been bringing them up recently in terms of a band that we need to talk about. And we are going to talk about them. Finally. Finally. I yeah. twist your arm. Well, you know, and I, we've had this Fitting. discussion. Yes, Billy. Jumping in already. <laughs> know your cue, damn it. <laughs> he said a song title. What did I say? Did I? Twist my arm. Oh, that's right. There you go. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to be dropping the, the song titles randomly throughout the entire episode. So you might... Uh, um, oh. That's Billy Peak. The gentleman <laughs> from the bands Miranda Sound uh, from the uh, 2000s and then currently of the band Bicentennial Bear. Billy goes way back with us all the way to Bowling Green, Falcon Radio. Fellow hip appreciator, welcome to the show, Billy. Thanks. I'm, I'm excited to be here to talk about the hip, and I haven't hung out with you guys in a while, so this will be fun. This will be fun. I, I, I demand it. And <laughs> so part of the reason why I didn't want to talk about the hip, Jay, is, is it's hard to talk about a band that you have a personal like history with, and mm-hmm. it's hard to take that fan hat off and put the reviewer hat on sometimes. I know we've struggled from yeah. time to time with uh, albums that we've reviewed. Well, the albums that we like are usually the shortest episodes because it's very hard to articulate what you like. The albums we don't like, I could tell you note for note why I don't like it. Right. So well, these these are sometimes the harder episodes for us to do. We'll get into a, a bigger discussion about the hip because we're not just talking about Trouble at the Hen House or 1996 album from 20 years ago. We're also going to talk a little bit about what's going on with the hip in the sense that we're recording this on a Sunday the day after the hip played what is supposed to be their final show based on the illness of lead singer Gord Downey. Possibly their last album was released, their 13th album, Man Machine Poem, back in the spring. That hasn't been confirmed by the band. They could continue to record, but but not tour around it. Um, but we'll get into that. Um, but we decided to bring Billy on because Billy is one of the few people that I know, or, or the only person I know, that actually uh, likes the hip. <laughs> In the United States, I know I, I I know people from where I grew up in Buffalo who are all huge yeah. hip fans because Buffalo is basically hip territory. Our our appreciation for the hip goes way back to college twenty some years ago. Yeah. Um, when 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 was it that we? So was the first? Well, did we go to one show together, or did we go to multiple shows together? Um, we went to a few shows together, but the first time we hung out outside of of. of falcon radio or school was going to detroit to see the live between us show which ended up becoming like this seminal recording for them that we didn't realize at the time and i was saying you know i didn't realize how popular they were i think the tickets said kobo hall you you went to kroger and bowling green and got us the tickets you did all the dirty work (laughs) and uh i i believe we drove like in a chevy caprice or something and uh we were going to Cobo Hall, and you were like, they play hockey there. And I was like, well, I don't even know what that means. Because I, I heard Cobo Hall, and I was thinking like St. Andrews Hall or something small. Mm. And we got we got there, and it's like 8,000 drunk Canadians in hockey jerseys. So I was like, what the hell? 
I thought that, like, I thought it was a club show and we got right. there and it was just enormous and it was an arena, you know? And um, I was like, well, the secret's out, but the secret never really got out. I think, you know, in Bowling Green or uh, up north near any, if you were near Windsor or near Toronto or, you know, Buffalo border cities, like they were kind of popular, but they were just the secret in the States and yep. written off as, you know, the American Pearl Jam or American REM or something that just didn't have the hooks. But, you know, there are a few of us who just adore them. What year was that show? That would have been like 96. It was Actually, the Trouble in the Headhouse tour. No, it, oh, okay. it was. Um, oh, I can tell you. Yeah, well, it came out in 97, but it, yeah, like, I, they were they were touring on the on Henhouse. Yeah, so it's in between their two records, uh, Trouble in the Henhouse and Phantom Power. It came out in 97, but it was recorded. Uh, where when, when was it recorded? I don't remember. I don't remember the exact date. Actually, wait a minute. That's stupid. I do know the exact date because I'm a, a dummy if I don't. It was recorded on November 23rd, 1996. There you go. Thank you. And I actually, I I, I had to Google my own history. Yeah. Uh, because I didn't. I'm disappointed you didn't have this written down like in a notebook. Yeah. What the hell? <laughs> I thought you were pulling out this ticket stub when you said, hold yeah. on a second. <laughs> but I, it's funny. You know, you said so. There were some some of our friends that played in bands in, in Bowling Green or in, in Columbus that we knew. I remember Adam Dow, a buddy of us, and I don't want to just name drop because whatever, but he came up to me and he was like, have you ever heard of the band The Tragically Hip? And he showed me the Live Between Us CD, and I was like, heard of it? I was at that damn show. Mm-hmm. And like, but, you know, we all found about him in our own little weird way. Like, I found out, like, I my first day in the dorms at Bowling Green I heard, you know, the music from uh, Day for Night coming out of a dorm room and poked my head in. I was just I was just getting into like music that was off the beaten path. And I was like, what the heck is this? And, you know, there was a it's funny. This kid, his name was John Hustler. He was a six foot five Asian kid that played hockey and track. And he was from Westport, Ontario. And um, he lent me the CD for a few weeks. And, um, you know, I went up to to. To, into downtown BG and ended up buying it. But um, yeah, that's how the, I heard about them was from some hockey dude. Yeah. I was going to ask if there was a hockey connection here with, you know, Bowling Green's a pretty good hockey school. And yeah, yeah, well, totally. Was, so before all those we Canadians. Get, yeah. Yeah. Before we get into uh, talking about the record trouble at the Hannah house, I want to just give everybody just a brief history of the tragically hip for those who are not familiar with the band. History of the band. So they formed in 1984, actually. They're from Kingston, Ontario. And the original lineup is the same lineup that has always been the band, which is Gord Downey is the lead singer. Uh, Rob Baker is the guitarist. Gord Sinclair as the bassist. Johnny Fay as the drummer. And then Paul Langlos. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Lenoir. Lenoir. Sorry. It's French. (laughs) I don't know if that's it. Uh, he was a second guitarist. Yeah. They were a bar band, essentially. Did covers. Uh, were And they actually, at the beginning, had a saxophone player on some songs. But this oh, is before God. they did any recording. This was just go and play in bars, kitch, you know, at college, you know, colleges in the uh, Kingston area and in the whole, like, you know, circuit up in Canada. By the time, there was 84. By the time 86 rolls around, saxophonist is out of the band 
put out their first EP, 1987. That's just called the Tragically Hip. Uh, first album up to here came out in 1989. And then they put out 13 studio albums between 1989 and 2016. Um, the one we're talking about, like I mentioned, is Trouble from the Hen House. Came out in 1996. They've basically sent, spent their entire career on two different labels. MCA was what they were signed to back in 87. And their first four albums came out on MCA. And then everything after that has been on Universal. So they've been on a major label their entire career up in Canada. MCA was kind of a mess, though. I wonder if that didn't have something to do with how hard uh, or why they'd never broke here. Just actually, if you I go said, back and look at who was on MCA, it's kind of a yeah. mess. I said label. four. It was actually the first five albums that came out on MCA. Um, yeah. So, and as we mentioned uh, in the in the buildup. Uh, Gord Downey in uh, May of this year was announced that he had been diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. So the band put together, based on the release of the new album, uh, a tour. The album came out in June, and then they toured. I think they played 15 shows, the final show being uh, last night. And it was broadcast across Canada via CBC. You could watch it on YouTube streaming. One of my uh, friends... From Buffalo, who's a, a, a big hip fan, said um, had posted a picture. It said Canada is closed Saturday evening at eight thirty. And if yeah. you saw some of the shots from outside of the stadium, it looked like looked they were like like the Vatican Square when they're announcing the new Pope. Like it was just yeah. filled with people. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the only thing I could think of is when the Cavaliers were just winning the NBA title, and the way that the city was just in downtown Cleveland as it was happening. So either you were in the arena. Or you were just outside of it, watching on big screen, so that like you could celebrate together. The prime minister of the country was there in t-shirt and jeans. He was in a like, God blessed Canadian tuxedo. It was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was incredible. That's that awesome. guy, was, it was awesome. Billy, you mentioned about how you, how you discovered them. My uh, my uh, discovery of the hip is a little, is a little bit different. Um, so I spent a summer in 94 dr- driving cars for budget rent-a-car and <laughs> of, course. of course and that was my summer job back in i i went back to buffalo for that summer I, it was the last time in college i would spend the rest of my summers in bowling green you know taking classes and, and doing my night guard jobs which were very important but um that was the summer or that was when uh day for night was released that album actually came out well it came out in september but I was there from May to whatever, end of August. So I heard yeah. those singles that came out before, just because, you know, it's not like now when an album just drops. Before, I used to get a single six months or, you know, four months before the album would come out. So mm-hmm. I heard, like, Grace 2 and Nautical Disaster on the radio driving the budget rent cars And I was yeah. like, what is this band? And as mm. soon as we got back to... Bowling Green is when the album came out. So I immediately got the album and I think I probably dubbed a copy from the radio station first because I used to dub everything onto cassettes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and then ended up going to uh, Finders in Bowling Green, buying it. And then I bought, uh, I went backwards and bought uh, Fully Completely and Road Apples. Yeah. Also on CD. Now here's the crazy part. If you remember... WBGU, the station next to us, still had a vinyl closet. 
and they actually sold it off while we were there. And the uh-huh. only piece of vinyl that I bought is the Tragically Hip's debut EP, and I still have it on vinyl. Oh, oh wow! And it has WBGU written on the cover, and then on the actual vine piece of vinyl. So That's, I've never heard that EP. That's like the only thing I don't own. It's very much in line with the with the first album. A little bit shakier yeah. production, but it's it's pretty close to that. So, were you listening to? Does Buffalo get like Canadian radio, or was yes. it on Buffalo radio? Yeah, well, it was on Buffalo <coughs> radio because mm-hmm. it's considered they're considered a Buffalo band essentially. Yeah. Um, and then I would get there was a radio station out of Ontario that we would get where I could hear mm-hmm. the Tea Party and various other Canadian bands that were at the Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah. The, the, well, I mother earth, um, <laughs> you know, Holy crap. That, those, about... those sorts of bands. Yeah. Um, so they played the hip constantly, but the Buffalo radio station supported them. You know, them and the Goo Goo Dolls were in constant rotation on the Buffalo alternative rock stations. Yeah. So I ended up, I've seen this band live and I, I didn't realize it until I looked it up six times. Uh, which is almost like that's when you get into like oh you are you traveling to follow the band like that's that's right crazy territory but well, a lot of these were circumstance like i just happened to be in like oh they're playing i might as well go to the show like they hmm. played in uh columbus at by uh, centennial park uh, wilco. with, that was, with wilco uh, in summer 98 it was free so, it was free yeah and there was like yeah, nobody was there we just walked up to like you know, it was amazing. It was yeah. like us yeah. and a bunch of dudes in hockey mullets holding a banner. It was uh, like crazy. Yeah, that and that's the first time I saw them, and uh, well, the only time I saw them. And I was I had no idea the whole Canadian thing. So we're sitting there watching a band, and there's, I think there was a Canadian flag being waved by somebody, and then there was <laughs> yeah some guys with banners. I was like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> yeah. So they would come back the following two years. In '99, they played the Newport Music Hall, and do you know who opened for them? Yeah, it was Pretty Mighty Mighty, right? Yeah, Pretty Mighty Mighty opened for them. Yeah, I was at that show. That was a show we interviewed him at. Okay. Because, like, we had Keith. Remember we did that video? We had And when we were all working at Bowling Green's radio station, we had a video show called Video Box, and we would play, you know, um, AAA alt-radio videos that MTV didn't or whatever. And um, so we interviewed, it, interviewed sorry, uh, Gord, the bass player, and um, Paul, the guitar player, and just hung out with him for a second. Cool. And then they came back the following year in 2000 and played Newport Music Hall again. And that was an awesome show as well. Yeah. I missed most of the show because did did? I was on a date and I read the opening. It was like, you know, the doors were like 730, which was typical for a Newport show. I figured okay, one of the shows where, where you had the poops. No, that was the cult show. <laughs> the what uh, show? The cult. <laughs> cult. Yeah. Oh man. I had Newport to go to this. I had to run to, to this the, the Chipotle next door. <laughs> How many rock shows have you missed because of IBS? Oh, more than a few. But uh, so I go and I I figure okay, there's gonna be an opening band. They'll probably play from like eight to nine, and then the hip will go on at like nine thirty or ten, and they'll play you know an hour and a half, and then so we'll get there at like you know nine thirty, and we'll be fine. The hip didn't have an opening band that night. Yeah, and we got in there, and they were finishing the first set before doing their encore set. Totally blew it. We were at Grinders next door, for like <laughs> eating and talking, waiting for the opening band <laughs> to get done, 
and completely blew it. So I some I think I kind of remember all this. I was there yeah. for sure with my girlfriend at the time, and it was an amazing show. I remember just being blown away. And again, though, it was still like a secret. You know, it was a it was a crowded Newport, but it wasn't anything like right. You know, packed to the gills or whatever. So. And then I saw him twice in '96. I saw him at Buzzard Fest, which <laughs> I want to thank Matt Wardlaw because he just sent me the audio from that show. So I'm going to oh, go wow. back and listen to that set. And then I saw that. So that was in, it was actually like a month apart. Um, Did you go to the Toledo Zoo show? I went to the Toledo Zoo show. Yeah, okay. I I remember being bummed I couldn't go to that or something. I was like delivering pizzas. <laughs> that was weird because I went by myself. Yeah. And you want to talk to people when you're like standing in line waiting to get in. But you're like, you know, I'm not extroverted when it comes to that sort of thing. So I'm just kind yeah. of standing there with my tragically hip shirt on looking like a dork. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, but it was a great show. They played outdoor, like, like next to the animals. <laughs> I was going to say, did, didn't a pigeon land on your head or something during pigeon camera? No, during pigeon camera, a flock of pigeons flew over. <laughs> it was very weird. I think people need to know that you've always felt like the hip was speaking to you at a different level. Like, they, you grew up or you spent some of your childhood in a town called Chagrin Falls, and they yep. wrote a song called Chagrin Falls. The, 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 it's basically like just destroys Chagrin Falls, even yes. though. And then, you know, there are plenty of mentions of Chevy Caprices in those songs, and I know you guys had a, a fleet of Caprices growing up in, in, in Buffalo. So there's all these mentions that you're like, these guys speak to me. Oh, yes, they speak my language. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I, and here's the, so here's the story on that. In the song Something On on Phantom Power, which I love, they mention Chevrolet Caprice. On the yeah. same album, there's the song Chagrin Falls. On the song, in the song at the 100th Meridian, he says, I remember Buffalo, which is where I grew yeah. up. So when Phantom Power came, up, came out, I was living at home. It was the summer where I was interning for the Buffalo Bisons. I went, I looked on the CD, and it had an email address. So I jokingly wrote an email saying, Hey, just want to let you know. Uh, you've mentioned Buffalo, Chagrin Falls, and Chevy Caprice, and I. These are all things that like. I, these are my things. Like I have a Chevy Caprice. I lived in I lived in Chagrin Falls, and and I live in Buffalo. Not thinking that I would get an email back. Yeah. And I got an email back, and it was like, "We're watching you." <laughs> and that was all it said. That's awesome. You, you know what's funny though, Tim, is that uh, so my my father was born in Buffalo. We had a Chevy Caprice growing up, and my wife was uh, grew up near right on Chagrin Falls as well. So that's oh. that's crazy. Yeah, that is a weird uh, similarity. Yeah. Anyhow, anyhow, we've done enough reminiscing. Let's talk about Trouble at the Hen House, the Tragically Hips album from 1996. Yeah, it is the follow up to their. What would be considered their breakthrough record, Day for Night, came out in 1994. It was their fourth album. This is the one that got them on Saturday Night Live when Dan Aykroyd was hosting. This is the one that got them some minor inroads with American radio. Uh, but it's the one that uh, they sold a ton of records. They actually sold 300,000 copies within four days of release in Canada. Which, Are you talking Day for Night? Day for Night. Yeah. So... Trouble at the well, Hen House is the follow-up. 
Well, fully completely, the record in 92 had six or seven, like, big Canadian singles, too. Like, really anthemic rock songs. Yeah. Um, and, and, but Day for Night, Day for Night, and I know we're not talking about the record, but compared to fully completely as a bar rock song album with tons of, like, anthems and it's straightforward and day for night is really dark like yep. really really dark and that's the that was the first record that i heard so i heard it a year after it came out the following fall of of 95 and fell in i loved it i just absolutely loved it but there it's it, there's nothing happy about it it's no. nasty dirty and it's it, and so Trouble in the Hen House is like, how do you follow that up? This record that was somehow really popular, but also really dark. Yep. So I want to go around the room and talk about one thing that you liked about Trouble at the Hen House. Jay, I want to start with you because you're the person least familiar with the band. So, well, I I mean, I was familiar in um, World Container. I listened to a lot. I listened to Phantom Power quite a bit. So I knew some of the stuff, but there's a lot of material here, obviously. It's a band with a long history, so... Um, I knew a couple of these songs uh, after uh, giving it the first listen. I recognized um, Head by a Century for sure. I think the thing that I've been trying to do as I'm reviewing this and the events of this weekend and just reconnecting with this band, part of it is me trying to understand uh, why didn't, what, what does and what did connect with me with this band and what didn't. And it also like just trying to understand, especially from a Canadian standpoint, you know, just historically, like, why did this band connect so much and identify and just, I don't know, become so important to a country? I think that's fascinating. In doing that, I think the thing that I realized that I like most about them and this record is that um, they're absolutely 100% a real band. And I don't mean that just like they play their instruments. I mean, like, you can hear on this record where they don't ever step on each other they get you can hear them getting out of the way of each other you can hear even to the point where i think you know their musicianship isn't fully appreciated at times because i think they realize uh the lyrics and the vocals are so important to what they are that they just get out of the way yeah Um, that that's yeah and not all bands can can do that um most can't do that um so I think just when I re- listened to the record, I, I, I picked up on that, and that's what I really appreciated. I appreciated the constraint uh, they put on themselves, and I also appreciated just how well they play together and, and just sort of completely selfless. I think that's a rare thing and probably why they stuck around for so long with the same uh, five members and made so much music together. Billy, what's one thing that you like about this record? Um, I, you know, I think I'll jump on that bandwagon a little bit with how authentic it is. Um, I love the production of it. I love, there's a sparseness to the musical arrangements. The, the songs are, they, most of them are slow builds, but you, and, and, and there aren't sometimes very super obvious choruses, but they all stick with you in this weird way. And, um, I, I think Jay made a really good point. Um, they know still today um, and they've always known that the 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 oddness of the lyrics and the oddness of the melodies and and the words themselves mean just as much or probably more than anything else that's happening in their music. And so they give Gord and his weird lyrics that are super smart but super kitschy. They, they let him breathe. And I think you know, gift shops just slowly builds. Springtime in Vienna slowly builds, but like. 
all those songs have these really distinctive parts that aren't buried by anything. You just like I know what every person in that band is doing on every song because I can clearly hear it. Right. And I've, you know, listened so many times. Something I want to touch on that you said is I think as Gord as a lyricist and a vocalist, he really relaxed on this record. And I think that yeah. really bode well for the remainder of their career. You know, he had the same sort of manic delivery at the beginning of his songwriting career that like the Manic Street, Street, manic street Preachers dealt with. They were trying yeah. to cram a lot of words and ideas and it became so rapid fire that a lot of times you couldn't keep up with what, 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 what was going on. And this record, thanks to them being more moody on Day for Night, even though there was some elements of, of that uh, rapid fire delivery on that album, this album really relaxes the cadence of his vocal. There's almost none of that. I, I'm thinking like Coconut Cream kind of has a little bit of that. But that's kind of a, you know, a kitschy kind of one-off song. But most but that, of these songs are really chill on the on like how quickly he's delivering the vocals, and I really like that. Yeah. Well, Coconut Cream, um, you know, we mentioned Phantom Power. Phantom Power is a, a record. It's If you ask me my favorite hip record, I'd probably say Phantom Power because it has these huge pop hits that are just mm-hmm. undeniable, like Fireworks and something on. Those songs are incredible. Um, but this record doesn't have those kind of like glossy pop songs. There are definitely some sing-alongs. Ahead by a Century is a very beautifully built and produced song, no doubt. But there aren't the three-minute pop gems, I would say. It, it is moody, but it's like, it's just this weird transition record between Day for Night, which is all mood and all dark, and I mean, Phantom Power is kind of a, a pop record, and it's it's sitting in between there, and it's like this band in transition um, and even like where they're having a little bit of fun, like coconut cream, you know, there's some tongue in cheek, uh, humorous lyrics in there. I think, uh, 40 Christians in a circle jerk, they wait for their daddy, <laughs> their daddy comes home from work. And I'm like, what? Yeah, at the time I was <laughs> 20 years old. And I was like, this is brilliant. You know, I just like, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it, but, um, that's, it's quintessential gourd and, it really shines through because like you guys were saying, the arrangements, let him, let him shine. And I picked up on the, he's, he's delivered, his delivery is on the backbeat a lot, which I really oh, yeah. think works for how quirky and different his melodies are. I, I think if he was, I haven't 
heard, I don't think, much be- before this. Um, so I can imagine if he was pushing a lot more, uh, just a lot more words and in, in kind of pushing the, the tempo of the song with his vocal, I could see that not being as successful. This is very much like kind of laid back and he's just letting things, the whole band is just letting things develop. It just sounds very organic. Yeah, and I think there's a transition on this record. I think the previous record was a transition, even fully completely is, is a transition in the sense that they started out as a very like straightforward kind of blues rock band in a, in a way with up up to here. You know, there's there's elements of like Black Crow style Southern rock on, yeah. that, on that album. You know, if you if you were to take Ian Asbury out of the cult on Electric, you know, some of the songs like Blow It High Doe or or the riffs uh, I'll Be Leaving You would not be far off, just produced a little bit differently. And yeah. then Road Apples kind of continues that, but they they tweak it a little bit. Fully, completely, it loses that southern rock element. It becomes more of a straightforward rock band. There's still some like folksy kind of stuff with like Wheat Kings. But yeah, but they they they're so straightforward on that record, and I yeah. like that record a lot. I, those songs to me live like flourish. Yes. Because the production on Fully Completely is really shiny and very it's it's very nineteen ninety one or ninety two whenever it came in. It just yes. sounds like everything else that was because, you know, grunge hadn't dirtied up production at that point. Um mm. and in my like I'm I'm trying to put myself in that headspace. And I, I think, yeah, I mean Nirvana still hasn't like become super popular at this time, so everything is really shiny and out front. And those songs just are super tinny, but live yeah. when you hear me they're a monster and mm-hmm. but yeah yeah good good point that every record there's this huge evolution um not an evolution but they 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 change so much from record to record the transition from fully completely to, to day for night is literally day for night you know yeah. day and night the records from the 90s sorry to cut you up, but the records from the 90s i always know what song is from which record immediately and yeah. not because i listen to them that much just but like you know what's part of the, the hen house batch versus the fully completely batch because of how they sound. And like, yep. they're, they're always a time capsule from that period where the stuff they put out in the two thousands to me, is kind of blurry. Um, it doesn't, it's not as distinctive. And from a production standpoint for, yeah, both. I think yeah. um, I, well, actually I think world container is a pretty good record, but the, the other stuff that was put out from the two thousands on after Phantom power, just, it's just kind of a big wash for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll, I'll say that, in terms of uh, records, um, we can get into a larger discussion, but yeah. World Container to me is by far like their best attempt at a pop record. Well, and, I mean, they made it with Bob Rock. I mean, that yeah. guy, you know, he's... You know, and what he did was he really, I think, helped Gord simplify his choruses 
because yeah. they're killer on that album. And he also had him double his voice a lot on that record, yeah. which really helps bring up his melodies when you get to the chorus, when yeah. he's got that double vocal. Because a lot of the time it's it's a backing vocal <clears throat> done by Paul or Gord. Yeah. And those guys are fine, but to hear Gord get Downey get doubled by himself on record really well, makes his vocal shine. And for somebody, I mean, for at least for me, I that record is very immediate, right? For all that production work, that's what the result is. You get it right away. I think yeah. what I've always struggled with, and I, even on this record, it took it takes time. I mean, with this sure. with this with this band and this record, where first listen, it kind of all blurs together for me and then the second listen I start picking out third listen fourth listen the more and more I listen to it I understood better where the changes were where the choruses were the hook started to really kind of stick with me and make sense I mean this isn't a band at least this era of them where you know first listen it's like at least not for me where it was like oh I get it and uh, you know that song's killer it's sort of like um it's interesting uh you know it's gonna take me some time Whereas I think on that, you know, World Container was a good entry for me. And Phantom Power as well, where it's like, okay, yeah, like these are sharp and punchy, I get it. And now I can kind of go back to the, in the catalog and start to make sense of everything else. It's funny, I, I went for a long bike ride on Saturday morning and um, popped this in on my iPhone and just like, you know, listened to it a lot. And while I was riding and listening, it was, it was kind of dorky, but it, I was kind of on a trail next to Alum Creek and it's beautiful out and the... And so it's this kind of like perfect soundtrack to slowly building songs while the you can hear the creek, uh, the water moving and stuff. And it's like, I don't think if I'd have heard this record at a different point in my life, like even 10 years after that or in the last 10 or 12 years that I would have really loved it that much or given it that much of a, an opportunity because I've become a less patient listener um, I think I love stuff that's punchy and in, in my face and I, I get the hook right away and I can, you know, consume it right away. And I think that, I don't know, maybe because it was the middle of the 90s and because I think we were all kind of at that time listening to music that was just a little bit darker and a little bit um, not angrier, but it, more emotive. And, um, you know, it really fits. It's time stamped by that. But it's also it's timeless as well. Like th these songs hold up. There's a lot of shit I was listening to in 1996 that, I mean, I wouldn't even yeah. tell people, I wouldn't tell people. And so this is not one of those things like, oh, especially for their records, like it really, really holds up the production. You know, there are, there are certain things you hear about a, a rock record from 1995 through 98. And you're like, Oh, that's snare. That's a nineties snare. And it's like, Oh, it's gross. It's just, there's no depth to it. And, um, however they recorded this and I'm not super familiar with Mark Veekman and um, I don't you know I tried to look him up a little bit and there's not a great history to him but the production's great yeah it is I, I, I enjoy the production quite a bit I like the um, the restraint on the drums and I watching the show last night I was fascinated by the fact that they have basically two kits set up and the drummer moves back and forth depending on the song yeah it makes a huge difference I mean again it allows you heard on this record and you, and you heard it live where there's just songs where they just want, it just needs to come down a little bit, you know what I mean? And, and, and they're able to do that, but still build to an intensity at some point. But, um, I, I found that, that pretty, pretty interesting. 
the drummer, so Johnny's not a, he's not a very adventurous drummer at all, but it, it seems like he just plays in a perfect pocket for the way that they write songs. And their songs are, you know, they usually kind of start slow on this record and build to a crescendo around like, you know, after the, the second course or whatever. And, um, but his, his playing is just perfect for what they're trying to do here. He's so, I guess you'd say, straightforward as a drummer that on Phantom Power, there's a song called Vapor Trails where he starts the song with like a floor tom. And I was like, he has a floor tom? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he shuffles a lot, um, especially on this record. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he, the way he plays is I, typically, I think, perfect for this band, but especially on this record. I noticed last night that uh, um, sometimes he plays with um, not brushes, but they're like those stick things. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Regular sticks. It's like a I bunch just, of tiny sticks bundled yeah. up. It's like a little yeah, bundle. Right. I, I, I was just fascinated by like the attention that's paid, at least from his standpoint, that it's not about playing complicated parts. It's about like the right sounds and the right energy and, and that, that kind of thing, intensity. Mm-hmm. which I thought was pretty cool. Um, what do you guys make of the, there's a couple of references, at least I felt to Nirvana on this record. So there's, Kurt I felt Cobain reincarnated. Um, yeah. And okay. I felt like um, track two, the verses, at least that phrasing is a very Kurt Cobain ish phrasing. And I think he even uses the line territorial pissings at one point, which is, a he does. One. yeah. Territorial piss post eight. That well, funny. We were talking about Johnny Fay. Like, I think he helped write that song. That's one of the songs that the the drummer and Gord Gordani, the singer, wrote together. I feel like, I mean, 1996. I think we were all still kind of shook up by Kurt Cobain's death or whatever. And at the time, I remember just being like, not overwhelmed, but or imp- I guess impressed that he was just like addressing it head on. Um, and when I, and I look back at it and I think about it and I was like, you know, now people make reference to it a lot, maybe not in songs, but obviously we've had a, a huge public discourse about what happened and how it affected all of us or whatever. But at the time it just felt really, and I, I remember feeling this, I no doubt remember feeling like at the time I was like, this guy, these guys are gutsy to just bring it up. And, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, like, and they didn't bring it up at the time in any like really controversial way, but Kurt Cobain reincarnated, like, I don't know, that really stuck with me. And mm-hmm. it was, re- it was also easy to impress a 20 year old mind at that time. So, you know, to me, it was super cerebral. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he's speaking to a generation right there. Does he, um, lyrically, I mean, 
I get the sense that he doesn't write about himself very often. Do you, do you think that's the case? So when I'm listening to his lyrics, should I, how much of this should I interpret that he's, it's autobiographical and how much of it is him just telling stories? Well, from my understanding, as far as like his background, um, mm-hmm. is that he went to school. It was somehow related to film. Um, I have to double check that. He has an appreciation for, I guess, using characters. So I think a lot of the time when he's singing, he's singing from the position of a character, which may not be fully formed. But if you notice when you read his lyrics and, you know, one of the things I've lost in the MP3 age is that I used to sit and just pour through lyrics and you would sit there and you would look at the lyric and there'd be quotation marks around some of the lyrics and realize, oh, this isn't like a line he's singing. He's quoting a character who's saying this line. As mm. if he's having a conversation within the song, he does that quite a bit. I mean, even the song like "Flamenco" has there's conversations that are going on in that song, and that's not the only one on this album or even throughout his career. So I, I get the feeling that he takes maybe ideas that are fashioned around maybe something that's personal, but he sh- like shields them in these stories or in these characters. Or, you know, some of the stuff is actually like Wheat Kings, which you've mentioned off of fully completely. That's the story of a guy. It's a true story of a, a guy who was sent away for murder and was spent 20 years in prison. And then it was revealed, you know, that he wasn't the murderer. And so he's, you know, just taking something that was out of the news that was relevant to Canadians because that, that wasn't a big story, that, that murder case in the United States. I, did you guys watch last night after last night's show on CBC? They kind of had a roundtable with three or four um, music writers and mm-hmm. um, people who worked with them, and they were kind of saying, you know, he kind of told alternative history stories to people that maybe weren't going to be in the Canadian history books, you know, and just like kind of weirded random facts. Um, 50 Mission Caps, another great one too. You know, it's about a hockey player who scored oh, the last goal for yeah. the for the the maple leafs and then they didn't then the guy went missing and the next time they saw him was like they found him 11 years later when they they won the cup again or even like these great little stories about canadian history and pop culture that you know it seems i mean i can't identify with this i don't the only thing i know about canada i've learned in tragically hip songs (laughs) and but um you know to these people like it's kind of this extra fabric of history that probably wasn't in their history books. And I, I'm trying to draw parallels to them, you know, in American history or the way that we learn about folk music. And, you know, I, you don't want to get too melodramatic and say like things like Woody Guthrie or whatever, but like, there's definitely this folkiness, even in the rock songs, this folkiness, this Canadian folkiness that just, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I've never ever felt like he's singing about himself, but I also never felt like, you know, I love God in my voices. And Bob Pollard, he sings about absolute horseshit. Like, I I never know what that guy's talking about. He strings together a bunch of weird words just to be different because he's put out, you know, 800 songs. So, like, I feel like, you know, those are – some of them are love songs and there might be a character that I can somewhat identify with. But it doesn't feel like it's about anything most of the time. Whereas even though I don't half of the time know what the hip are talking about, like, I feel like it's about something. I know that's – Hard yeah. to qualify, but um, it, it's about something, and it, it's usually historical, and it usually means a ton. So, 
um, it's a different approach. And that's what I kind of loved about that era in the 90s of getting the CD, pouring through the lyrics and going, what the hell does that mean? And then like yeah. going to like either the early internet or actually trying to find a book and like look up a reference like, where is this place? What is this town that's being mentioned? Like, I, I don't yeah. know what these things are. It's in the same way that like, and I mentioned the Manic Street Preachers earlier, like I love looking or I loved looking through all those early albums reading the lyrics and being like what is this politician they're referencing you know who's this mass murderer that's in this song like who are these people <laughs> i think that that and this can kind of diverge into a different topic but there are a lot of people who don't like that about the hip because it makes them it, it puts a barrier you can't just enjoy the music for the music or the lyrics for the lyrics that all of a sudden it becomes like oh he's he's you know packing all this dense information into the songs and the lyrics are already or the, or the melodies are already unusual he has a non-traditional voice let's put it that way in yeah. the sense that you know he's barking when he's live and uh much more animated is great because it's energetic mm -hmm. but it can push people off and um you know i i read even after the show i, I shouldn't have gone on the internet but i did and uh, there were people that were like, yeah, I never got this band, just couldn't, couldn't, you know, stand all the Canadian references. And I kind of was like, you know, I bet if you really broke it down, maybe eight or, you know, I think maybe two or three songs on each album had some sort of real direct Canadian reference. Now, if he says yeah. hockey and you're, you're claiming that's a Canadian reference, okay, fine. I mean, they do play hockey in the United States, but... Like, there's a song called The Lonely End of the Rink on World Container. I don't think of that as... I mean, it's a Canadian song because it's a, a song using hockey as an allegory. But is it really? I mean, I, I, yeah. it's a sport. You know, yeah. on, there's a song on um, In Between Evolution, which is actually, I really, going back to that record, I really think it's a strong record. But the opening song is about a hockey player, but it's never mentioned it was about a guy named Dan Snyder who died in a car accident. And it's called Heaven is a Better Place Today. Yeah. And But the chorus of this, he uses a lot of like sports analogies. And what it, he says, if and when you get into that end zone, act like you've been there before. But using end zone is an allegory for heaven, I guess. Mm. Um, so it's a deep song. But he's not using sport as like, oh, it's a surface level. I'm talking about sports as if I'm Smash Mouth. I'm talking about sports as, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm talking about sports as a, yeah. as a bigger picture idea. You know, it's funny, I think, I mean, God forbid you listen to something that teaches you something about somebody else from a different place, you know? Right. But, like, I think, I think that's what I like about them, mm -hmm. is that 
I, half the time I didn't know the references, and, and it's not like I went and did research on Bob Cajun or anything, but I was introduced to this place, this faraway place that with these weird characters, and to me it was like reading Vonnegut, you know, and I, I don't want to get super over the top of what about this, you know, I don't, but like it just, they the songs take you weird places that you weren't typically going to go. Right. And, and I feel like it really expanded my palate. Um, it, it, you know, I don't want to talk about my own music, but it really changed the way I approach lyrics because it was like, you know what? Take the listener somewhere special. Take them to this place that they've never been because why give them the same experience they've gotten everywhere else, you know? And I, right. I think that's what's special about, you know, especially this record. I know we're kind of going off on this tangent about the band as, as a whole, and I think that's totally warranted. But, you know, um, Gift Shop and Head by Century, like these songs take you these weird places that like you just weren't going to go, especially when you were listening to American alt rock at the time, which by this point had become very distilled and very generic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We should talk about it in the context of 1996. Yeah. I mean, 1996 is pretty much where, you know, commercial rock was kind of jumping the shark, right? Like, well, they had lost the ability to, it was became singles oriented, you know, but I mean, you weren't pushing bands yeah in terms of album bands it was what's the new you know we just had jacob slichter on from semi-sonic you know uh -huh. it was finding the next closing time finding the next marcy playground finding the next presidency of the united states finding the next whatever that just could get mean, you a, a, a santa monica everclear or yeah what have you but like so think of like rock music of that so if what were the biggest alternative rock bands at the time were Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, like Nirvana was gone, Stone Temple Pilots, Alice in well, Chains. All, all of those bands were really struggling in 1996. Like they, that's when they kind of lost their commercial appeal in a lot of. But Soundgarden broke up right around then. Stone Temple Pilots made a record with a different dude because the, the Scott Weiland was like so heroined out that he couldn't even make music and. Even Pearl Jam, which was, they remained hugely popular, but those records that were put out, and they're my favorite Pearl Jam records, but the records that were put out between like 96 and 99 weren't very well received. No. Um, so like commercial rock radio at the time, like really was hitting a wall. And I mean, I don't know what the hell this tangent I'm going off on is, but like, like tragically hip. I don't know that the music they were making was really special and unique and weird compared to what was on 89 X radio at the time. Well, it wasn't ahead by a century. Isn't closing time. It's not, a, oh, no. it's not a obvious commercial radio single. That's going to help like, sell a million albums. I keep thinking of Dishwalla. <laughs> I don't yeah. know why, but yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what I think I mentioned this on a couple episodes where um, we also got in this area where a lot of the hits had like the purposely goof goofy lyrics, like yeah. things that really stood out. Like, you know, so if you if you had any subtlety whatsoever, you tended to not be considered commercial, uh, you know, for radio airplay. Right. One, one of the things that I picked up on and now it seems obvious but uh, in terms of as i looked at okay what was the appeal of this uh, of this band why do they get so big um what does that mean um one of the things i think if you're going to compare them to pearl jam that i think they even they've done better than pearl jam is that um they unify across right and left 
and men and women. So like they've got the songs about hockey, you know, which can be anthems for, you know, maybe people who just, you know, guys who want to grab a beer and, you know, grab a buddy and whatever and just sing sing a song. And then there's like deeper stuff that it's going to be more, you know, those folks who may be into literature or whatever. It sort of unifies across that full spectrum politically and just, you know, in terms of interest. But then also, you know, as I watched the show last night, there was it was an equal split men and women. And I don't yeah. know. You know, I don't know that Pearl Jam, they kind of get in that area where, where they've been able to do that to some degree. But I don't feel like I think what the thing that makes the Tragically Hip so amazing and, 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 the, and the appeal and the way they connect with Canada is that, you know, in a lot of ways, it seems like they're they're telling stories about a whole country and they're connecting on a very like patriotic level. And I don't know of any other band that, in America that's even come close to doing anything like that. I mean, maybe Springsteen, but I think any appeal Springsteen has on the right is they complete misunderstanding of what he's saying. Yeah. <laughs> you know or they mean? just like, they, they purposely disregard it. They're like, we know where he is, but we just love the song. Right. So disregard it. But, and I was fascinated with this band. That doesn't seem to be the case. Like everybody, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not Canadian. I'm only can say what I've seen so far, but yeah, it seems to be universally like, you know, there's no controversy here. It's just complete yeah. unity. Yeah, and, and they're not a band that is, I guess you'd say, political, but they're socially conscious. If you remember during the concert, he kept talking about yeah, First Nations. Yeah, Lost Nations, First Nations. Yeah. And there's a, always been a, when they did, they used to do a thing called Roadside Attraction, where they would put like a bunch of bands together, and it was always connected to a social issue. And Gord Downey, if you've watched any interviews with him, he's actually kind of a soft-spoken guy, and... He, he's not nationalistic in the sense that, like, I'm writing all these songs for Canada and want to, you know, tell the story of Canada. It's just like, right. this is where I am. This is I'm going to write what I know or what mm-hmm. I've learned. And I'm just telling a common story that we all it's a universal experience for everybody who lives here. It seems foreign to Americans, but he doesn't consider himself like he's not like a raw, raw, go no, Canada right. type of person. Yeah. Right. And that that's what, you know, you're thinking about American artists that if you don't do the rah-rah thing, well, then you lose half the country. You know, they yeah. want you to be the, the the cheerleader. Like, you can't speak intelligently about the country and not pull – if you don't pull out your pom-poms, well, then, you know, they don't want to hear it. it, it right. I don't know. I was fascinated by that whole dynamic. I think, Jay, you mentioned, like, subtlety, too. Like, yeah, I think in America – and I don't want to paint with a super broad brush, but, like – you know, if you're not Toby Keith um, and this whole American flag thing, um, you know, flags, flags, flags everywhere, then you're not patriotic at all. And it's like you either have to buy the whole boat um, and completely embrace everything or you're, you're not patriotic. And right. I think I was ju- I was being facetious when I said I don't know anything about Canada that I didn't learn from the hip, although that was probably my introduction. But I think. They were perfect for Canada because Canada kind of is this place that is moderate to left and has a little bit of a chip on their shoulder, um, but are I don't a much more pleasant people than us. <laughs> and I think that like they don't worry so much about what divides them and what's different about 
you know, the left and the right up there as much as like they're more worried about what makes them the same and mm-hmm. and what what ties them together. And I think this band's kind of perfect for that. And there are Pearl Jam parallels in the sense that, you know, super indie rockers, people who are like indie rock purists or punk rock purists never wanted to give Pearl Jam their due. And then, you know, um, the the way that they kind of built up as a band that had a, a couple huge records, but then purposely drew away from being hugely popular and focusing more on their live performance and making records that they really wanted to. I think those are things that both the hip kind of dealt with as well. Um, you know, like I, I know for a fact, you know, indie rockers in, in Canada or whatever, cause you, you'd hear it. Like I remember there was a band called the sheepdogs or whatever in Canada that was like a, a big deal on the indie rock circuit. And they just completely ripped the hip and they, they got a lot of backlash from it, but like you could tell there was this like, we're too cool to love this mm. band that everybody in Canada loves. But I think, you know, maybe the events of the past year or the fact that they've been around for the last, for so long, is like they probably came back to being cool again because it was like, you know, the the, yeah. the, the way a popular ebb and flows. But um, there are definite parallels to Pearl Jam, but I, there's no definite way to say this is how it would have gone in America because America is such a different place than Canada. And, like, I think they only work that way in Canada. I don't know. I have no idea. But that, that's the vibe I got, especially just watching the reactions last night on the CBC. I, there's no way NPR or more so that, like, CBS or NBC shuts down broadcasting for three hours, commercial-free, and plays right. bands' final card. Like, that was mind-blowing. But the, it was so beautifully done. And um, – how special does an artist have to be? You know, usually you get 45 minutes on a Sunday night in tribute of somebody and it's destroyed by overproduction if you're going to, mm-hmm. like, you know, pay tribute. Like, oh, if you're yeah. going to pay tribute to Stevie Wonder in the United States, they're going to bring in every shitty pop star of modern times and yeah. be like, destroy Stevie's song so that yeah. it's somewhat relevant to these kids. Well, they just let this band play for three hours play three or four songs from every single record and without commercial and just like the whole country watch like it's just oh my god i could i that that couldn't happen here like it just right. yeah you know. yeah what you described is exactly what yeah went through my head when i think tim replied on facebook you know springsteen and, and bob dylan and my thought was yeah but the production wouldn't be the same they would ruin it it would turn into like an all-star extravaganza and like exactly. full of commercials and fucking ruining his songs and be on hbo or you know or it would just be yeah not well, the like, same it wouldn't I love just justin, be like go ahead. i love justin timberlake but you know like why do we need him singing springsteen but that's what's going to happen right. you know like in, in that environment whereas it was just like let the hip be the hip and go out like yeah. it was just and what a gesture by them you know I, that just doesn't happen i you know, we could we could talk make references to Van Halen or something, but it's like those. It's like get your shit together and be friends. You mm-hmm. know, the, the, everything's going your way at all times. I mean, I know it's not, but compared to the fact that this guy has terminal brain cancer, and like you could tell he was he was hurting last night yeah. from an emotional standpoint and a physical one. It was a lot of work for him. Mm-hmm. Um, because usually he's very active on stage, all over the stage. I mean, if you you think of like Michael Stipe or Mick Jagger, almost just not the way he moves, but the amount of movement he would do. And last night he was kind of stuck in the same six or eight foot space, and he was hurting. He was hurting physically and emotionally. And just to go out and, and tour the country like that and do that for their fans, it's just it's incredible. 
Um, yeah. it's, it's been really sitting with me all day just thinking about that. Well, and what did you guys think of, think when you heard the news of the when he announced it and then they were going to do a tour? What was your thoughts on that? Uh, I, back? I cried for Since like a day. Time. I'm not going to lie. Like yeah. I was I was wrecked because here's here's the thing about the hip is that there's been a lot of bands that I love that were my band like Wilco. I love them on AM. I love them on being there. And then they became Wilco a big band that like everybody knows they put on festivals. They are, they have a huge long, the tragically hip never blew up. So they were always kind of like my band. Yeah. And I'm going to get emotional here. Um, when that happened, like I, I got upset when Prince died and I got upset when Bowie died, but I didn't like go into like a day long funk over it. I was just like really bummed and I listened to the music in remembrance, and I, I spent like probably a week listening to that serious channel that had all the print stuff, and I was like loving it, hearing all the deep cuts that I hadn't listened to and live stuff. But like, and I said to Katie, my wife, when um when the news came out about Gord, I'm like, like this is somebody that like not only was like my band, but like this is one of the people that made me interested in music as yeah. something more than just listening to it on the radio. Like, this is something that I became invested in his words in the same way that I become invested in, like, a writer or invested in a a director who is more than just a normal director. Like, somebody might be invested in, like, Paul Thomas Anderson as a director or Richard Linklater, you know, who who are putting forth some sort of perspective that, you know, your average filmmaker might not put forth or or you're an author of the same level. Like, that was – that's – what his words and this band meant to me. So I was like toast for like a day and I was listening to songs and then you'd, you know, everything changes in perspective. So when you listen to heaven is a better place today, totally changes the, the meaning behind that song when you're thinking, Oh my God, the guy who wrote this is close to death now. Yeah. Or courage, courage and scared. Like there were just so many songs last night. I was like, I don't know how he's doing it, you know? Yeah, and you could see he was struggling because he was using teleprompters, too, because from what I've read, the, the, what he has almost has an Alzheimer's element to it where you start to yeah. lose your ability to retain memory. And um, you could tell, like, there were songs where he was struggling to remember lyrics and he was trying – even stuff that – you know, they had played New Orleans is Sinking a billion times – or blow it high dough, and he blew the first two lines of blow it high dough. Yeah, he did. And but... he sang that song for twenty five years. I was just like, or twenty seven years, and I was, I was crushed in the sense that like, ugh, like I he's like he's going through so much to do this for us. Yeah, I think you know, kind of tying it back to trouble in the hen house. Um, I. And not that my shitty music means that much to anybody or anything, but it's like that when I heard that record, it was right when I was starting to pick up a guitar and use it to do more than just like learn how to play covers. And I think as a kid who grew up in the 80s, all my favorite bands had guitar players who could do things with a guitar that I was never going to be able to do. And um, when I heard this band, like the straightforwardness of it, but there was it was straightforward. And there were a lot of straightforward bands up to that point that I heard and didn't care for. But there was something about them, like, 
you know what, you could play straightforward music, you could play music that it was a little bit more predictable, but if you use cool melodies and use smart lyrics or whatever, it makes it super interesting. And it's like, to me, it made rock and roll and writing rock and roll um, way more um, reachable. Like it was something that I could do. Yeah. And I think that that was like one of two or three records that I was listening to that summer. Um, I was working on a horse farm in Youngstown when I got the record from probably like a coconuts or something at the Southern Park <laughs> Mall. And uh, but you know, like it was it was probably the record that, you know, really made me write six, six or seven of my first songs. And um, but it was just it was so special and straightforward, but so smart, too. And like I. I didn't know that was attainable at the time because up until then, you know, even like, you know, I love, you know, at that time I probably also loved Soundgarden and, and Alice in Chains and like really dark alt rock, heavy alt rock, but like that, I couldn't play that shit. And, um, I wasn't even going to try, you know, like it, it wasn't even worth trying. So, um, that's to me was, was something that really affected me personally with with this record. I, I have that same reaction. I bet if I went back through my notebooks, when and looked at dates when I wrote things like, there's probably at least ten tragically hip ripoff songs from when the album <laughs> came off. Came yeah. out. Yeah. Well, I, I've I, I didn't think about like a lot of the 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 stealing that I've done of them has been subconscious. But like, you know, I I went back and looked and found a few like even song titles that were probably similar to album and song titles by them and. It just hit me, and I didn't, you know, I knew they impacted me. But this is a band that I always go back to. Um, probably didn't appreciate it as much as I should have, but I've always, always loved them, and especially the '90s. Like the the five records they put out in the '90s are just exceptional. Um, all of them, yeah. even I'm not a huge, uh, fully completely. I love the songs. Like I said, I, the production. I'm not a big fan, but I love those songs. But the other four, I mean, I just they're incredible albums. And that live record's phenomenal. And so, when I found out, like I, I went back in time. It was like because I hadn't been paying that much attention. Um, like I really got into World Container, but all the other records, probably since Phantom Power, there's been one or two songs I dug, but just didn't do that much for me. And um, I just I dug it. That's all. I, it's funny. This summer, a few people. I was at a cookout yesterday. Like, what are you listening to? I'm like, I'm all I've been listening to all summer is the goddamn hip. Like, I just. It, it kind of, you know, just recaptured my my love and appreciation of them. And um, the new record, I I thought it was really good. It's so dark, and knowing the circumstance, I guess I don't know if they knew about his brain uh, cancer while they were recording it. But they said they didn't. Yeah, I mean, it, they that and that's you know, obviously they're not gonna lie about it. But Jesus Christ, like right. that record, it's dark. It's really dark, and it's deep as hell. So like. Something was going on. Maybe he didn't know, but he knew something was going on. Um, just the way that it, it, they they approached that album and the the production of it and the way the songs build. So you know, I think that's how the news struck me. And I I was booger crying last night. Like I <laughs> when d- d- during Grace too when he like when he really had a moment. Um, I had to walk away. You know, um, and the cancer thing just it hits all of us and. Um, we're all affected by it. I know you guys have been, and um, this, my family. I've, I've had a couple people with brain cancer and um, and throat cancer, and the whole bit. It's just, I don't know. You know, most people don't get to to live the life that this dude did, but I just feel like he's carrying a torch, and that's that's it's it's pretty special. Um, and it hit me really hard. 
Are you guys glad they did the tour? Yeah, I, my only regret is that I couldn't figure out a way to get up there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just I had just started a new job and, you know, have two kids and like getting away trying to go see a show in Toronto on a Wednesday or something is really really tough and I haven't seen them since 2000. Well, maybe 2002. When did they play that show with Wilco? Was that 2002? That was 98. 98? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we we had just moved to Columbus. Okay, so Yeah. I would have so gone if they had played Buffalo. Yeah, I'd, I mean, I'd seen them in 2000 for sure at the Newport, the show that you came late to. Um, but that's probably the last time I saw them, I guess. Were they even touring America anymore? Did they just pretty much yeah, just forget they did, they did a fully, completely tour, um, like an anniversary tour. I guess it would have been like the 25th anniversary yeah. last year. Yep. They toured on that. Uh, and I... It's funny. Um, I think he's a mutual friend of ours. Bryce Glass reached out to me. He was like, are you going to go see this one? And I was like, man, I'm going to wait for the Day for Night reunion tour. And mm. uh, what a fucking Jesus. I mean, yeah, I, I really would have wished I would have gone. Because those songs, like I said, I love them live. So I wish I would have gone. But um, they played House of Blues in Cleveland on that Fully Completely thing. And I even thought about going. But it was like a Tuesday night. And, man, what a bummer. I, you know, In retrospect, I would have totally gone. Yeah, I, I I feel the same way, and that's pushed me to be like, I'm not going to make excuses for the shows that I really want to see. In retrospect, not being yeah. able to see certain artists anymore, it's making me go because I I really went through a long period of like if I look through my concert history of like four or five years recently where I just went to maybe like one show a year, and I was going to like twelve, fifteen shows a year back in the nineties and the early two thousands. Yeah. And, well, I mean, uh, you know, life changes and you get more responsibilities and whatnot, but I'm trying to pick my spots. Yeah. Well, I last summer, my wife and I went down to Cincinnati to see the Van Halen tour or whatever. And I was like, you know what, Michelle, I waited 25 years for David Lee Roth to get back in the damn band. And as long as they go on a tour, even if he sounds terrible or I'm still going to go because it, it's always yeah. probably going to be the last time. So, yeah. You know, that's my one regret about not getting to see this last tour. But but I mean, it's been so amazing. You know, I I know I'm preaching to the choir with you guys, but with technology, you know, I've watched at least 20 or 30 minutes of every single show on this tour through Periscope, you know? Yeah. So th that I mean, we how fortunate are we to live in an age when we can do that and like really transplant ourselves there? Now, now mine, if I was there in Kingston last night, I would probably have 30 beers not remembered any of it and uh, <laughs> wouldn't have a voice today, but still to experience it live last night was pretty special, even though it was in my dark living room with a, a nip of bullet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a different experience when you're by yourself, when it's a, a big community experience that it really, you know, is meant to be. Yeah. Cause you can't like, I don't want to call it a eulogy, but I mean, there was this like, we're all saying goodbye sort of feel to it. And yeah. it's, are you going to be, are you going to be able to watch this show again? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I've watched clips today. Have you? Yeah. Um, like I, I showed my wife cause she actually stayed up and, and watched some of it. She's not a hip fan. Doesn't yeah. dislike them, but just, you know, it wasn't her band. And um, I showed her the clip at the end of grace Two when he, he starts to, kind of break down a little bit you can see yeah and he's you know there's the Screams final four words he's screaming them out and it's so wrenching and 
I played that for her, and she was like, she actually started tearing up. Yeah. And uh, could tell how emotional it was. And I, I'm almost glad that they didn't end it that way, that they ended it with him posing for the audience on Ahead by Century. At oh, the yeah. Of, like, that to me is is the idea that I want to have of Gord. The sh- he's And she actually said, she's like, I can't believe how much of a showman he is. I'm like, this is nothing. Like, he's, yeah. being, he's a showman who's, you know, probably lost weight and he's struggling with, you know, being able to stay up there. I, I think the, the encores were as for much for him to catch his breath as anything. He was, I mean, like you said earlier, he was crazy on stage, prowling the stage, going into like, you know, famously they would do these jams where he would go into like five or ten minute long story monologues in the middle of a song and the band would just keep it together around him. And, and you know, no one to raise and, and lower the tempo or the to- or the the volume based on what he was doing. But that's when you talk about me having bootlegs. I still have a bunch of cassette bootlegs, and they're all different like shows of him doing random, weird, you know, stories. The famous one is is the killer tank ver- killer whale tank version of New Orleans is sinking, where he goes. Wow on this like 15 minute long story in the middle of that song about a guy who works at like a sea world in the killer whale tank and gets eaten by the whale. And, (laughs) and it's just, it's just crazy. I mean, yeah, that's what, that's what endeared. That was the early years of what endeared him to the audiences is that he was this wild man, which which is why I was always I always found it odd that they were compared to REM, other than like him having a slight vocal similarity to Michael Stipe, like yeah. they're a wildly different band than REM. Their stage, their stage presence is similar, I would say. Um, Gord's a little bit crazier, but I, Stipe gets into it. I mean, he's you know all over the microphone um, and pretty dynamic. But yeah, yeah, to me it was always more of a they were way more. Um, I think you said earlier it was like Black Crozy Pearl Jammy to me, um, but just with you know this weird pop culture that I really didn't understand, but that really enhanced the the experience for me. We did a horrible job of talking about this particular. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. That's okay. I knew that we were going to diverge, and yeah. uh, I was prepared for that. So that's fine. We've we've had other episodes where that's happened. Sometimes either these are just an excuse to talk about the band. So yeah, yeah. Maybe after time passes, we should get back together and talk about Phantom Power because I think that, like, if you're talking about a '90s record, I don't know, it it's it doesn't feel like a '90s record, but it's you know it's '98. But um, boy, that that was a great great comeback from this one. Yeah, and and that record to me is when I get I get frustrated by people saying, oh, you know, all he does is sing about Canada and there's all these like, you know, weird, you know, n- references to things that. You know, people don't have any idea what he's talking about. The opening verse of Fireworks is one of the most perfect distillations of falling in love. When he talks about the whole Bobby Orr thing. That song's lyrics give me goosebumps. Like, it's incredible. Yeah. And I know that's not the one we're talking about, but yeah. Yeah. And 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 he use and then in the second verse he uses the Cold War as an allegory for a marriage falling apart. Yep. I mean it's it's a level of songwriting brilliance that I when people dismiss them as 
eh, I, I just couldn't get into them. I, I feel like, did you listen past the first two records? Or the first yeah. three records? Because they're so far beyond what you're explaining to me that why you don't like them yeah. as being a Canadian-only band. I think the reason I was pushing to talk about this record in particular is because this is probably, for me, where they were right in the middle of their like kind of sweet spot or dominance. Like, yep. uh, and Because Fully Completely is great. Um, Day for Night's great. This record's great. And so is Phantom Power. And so it's like kind of right in the middle of that four-album four run that is just, it's hard to think that any band could top that from a personal standpoint. You know, like the, the bands that I love rarely put out four records in a row like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll say as far as, uh, you know, for a band that put out 13 records, there's really only one record that I don't like and don't listen to. That's the one, We Are the Same, which came out after World Container. Yeah, yeah. That record that does absolutely nothing for me, and I'm not surprised that they played no songs from it on the entire final tour, because I, I don't know what they were thinking with that record. Like, World Container is such a solid album. Yeah, I think it's up crazy. With that. And Bob Rock did that one, too, right? Yeah. He did the, yeah, so it's weird. He was like, okay, <laughs> That approach that we just did, like, so now we just get need to get as generic as hell because it's super generic. Yeah, it's super generic. Like, they, there's just yeah. They they bounce back. I thought now for Plan A is is a solid record. Um, it's got some it's got some good songs on it, but it didn't bounce back the way that it needed to. So I, I wasn't like when now for Plan came, A came out, I wasn't like, oh, this is this is a return for the hip. I was like, eh, that's that's all right. That's a good record. The new ones, I'm still digesting it so i can't even give you a real response to it but it's definitely dark and weird yeah but we should wrap up we're well over an hour on this on this episode and uh we could uh we could go like billy said we could go talk about phantom power for another hour but uh we'll say that for the 20th anniversary or yeah back in uh, in 2018 we'll we'll cover that record let's do it so uh well you know this is an album review so we should do our our patented album review scale, <laughs> which is worthy album. Would it make a better EP or is it just a decent single? Uh, it's a stupid question. I'm going to go with it's a worthy album. Jay. Uh, worthy album. Billy. Uh, worthy plus. There you sure. go. Easy peasy. Billy, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was great. Where can people go listen to Bicentennial Bear? Uh, Bicentennialbear.com. Hey, look at that. Yeah. And if they wanted to purchase a Miranda Sound uh, Baby Inertia CD, where would they get that? Original oh. version, not the SRC version. Uh, holy crap. I I don't know. I think I might have one in my basement. So if you can send me an email, <laughs> Billy at MirandaSound.com. If they're looking for some demos like a Kingsbury Suarez, where would they go for that? Only you, you asshole. You're like... <laughs> <laughs> i you took have. that down i took that down. i forget i forgot about that that's funny uh no right. thanks for having me absolutely you're welcome back anytime want to remind everybody itunes go there leave us some positive feedback jay has already explained why that's important on our previous yeah. episode but we'd greatly appreciate it if you did so you can join us at patreon buck a month you get behind the scenes information on episodes you get to vote on albums we're going to review you get bonus content from episodes and then at the 250 level you get to pick an album 
after 12 months. So for Billy and Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode. Big me out. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash digmeout or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com.